Was it a coincidence that there were two separate simulations of a killer virus originating from China months before an actual coronavirus release happened? Was it also a coincidence that a simulation in 2001 involving the release of anthrax astoundingly prepared the nation for an actual attack months later? Could protocols triggering continuity of government and martial law be correctly anticipating a similar event over the course of the winter? What is Operation Warp Speed, and what does its makeup tell us about the safety and secrecy of American vaccines? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we turn our attention to some of the key personalities behind the biotech industrial complex in the United States, and how their track records lead us to view their current plans with suspicion. We'll also explore a new private-public partnership for the expeditious dispense of vaccines, and how its overall shape should sound an alarm with listeners everywhere. Our contact for the hour is with investigative journalist Whitney Webb. On this week's program, coronavirus: a second look, part six, inside the belly of the biowarfare beast. A conversation with Whitney Webb, bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines. The Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 30th, 2020. This program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, on occupied Anishinaabegakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Beatrice Finn, executive director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, a major supporter and campaigner for the treaty, stated, quote, "The 50 countries that ratify this treaty are showing true leadership in setting a new international norm that nuclear weapons are not just immoral but illegal." The United Nations was formed to promote peace with a goal of the abolition of nuclear weapons. This treaty is the UN at its best, working closely with civil society to bring democracy to disarmament. Unquote. The arguments in the U.S. letter to oppose and prevent the entry into force of this historic treaty are spurious and preposterous, and indicative of their determination to retain possession of nuclear weapons while avoiding the stigma of now being known as a rogue state. That comes from the article "China: Nuclear Sword of Damocles Jeopardizes the Survival of Humanity." Entry in force of treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons by Carla Stay, posted October 29th. Ignoring North Korea only kicks the can down the road in addressing Pyongyang's growing nuclear capabilities and arms proliferation. Furthermore, a majority of Americans support the United States negotiating with adversaries like North Korea 
to avoid a military confrontation. Specifically, the next administration should replace the all-or-nothing stance with step-by-step reciprocal verifiable actions to advance denuclearization and peace. That could mean building confidence through opening liaison offices, easing sanctions, facilitating reunions between Korean-American families and their loved ones in North Korea, and formalizing a moratorium of North Korean long-range missile and nuclear testing and U.S.-South Korea military exercises. But most crucially, we must end the Korean War. That comes from the article, What Trump and Biden Get Wrong About North Korea, by Christine Ann, posted October 29th, originally published at Responsible Statecraft. The leaked documents disclose that special procurement channels outside the normal process were set up for VIPs. They also show that Cabinet Office was feeding its contact into the procurement process outside the normal public channel. Good Law Project is also aware that successful contractors like Ianda, which received a £252 million contract for supplying face masks, most of which were unusable, were guided through the process by the Cabinet Office. The leaked documents also evidence a startling opportunity for price gouging by favored suppliers. It is only if prices were more than 25% above the average paid to other suppliers that questions were to be asked about value for money. That comes from the article, Exposed Special Procurement Channels for VIPs and UK Cabinet Contracts, posted October 29th, originally published at the website for the Good Law Project. Electroencephalography and pupillometry measures of attention were recorded as 80 young adults, mean age 21.7 years, performed a goal-directed episodic encoding and retrieval task. Trait-level sustained attention was further quantified using task-based and questionnaire measures. Using trial-to-trial retrieval data, we show that Tonic lapses in attention in the moment before remembering, assayed by posterior alpha power and pupil diameter, were correlated with reductions in neural signals of goal coding and memory along with behavioral forgetting. Independent measures of trait-level attention lapsing mediated the relationship between neural assays of lapsing and memory performance and between media multitasking and memory. Attention lapses partially account for why we remember or forget in the moment and why some individuals remember better than others. That comes from the article, The Attention Economy in Our Lives, Memory Failure Predicted by Attention Lapsing and Media Multitasking by Kevin P. Medore Anna M. Kazanzun and et al. Posted October 29th, originally published at Nature. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar.
problem with the major edifices of biodefense and pandemic preparedness standing their post at the guardianship of our universal health is a strain of corruption sleeking through its domain, becoming a distraction and even a dark, mysterious, and even a ruthless dimension asserting itself in the wake of U.S. government and corporate affairs. A case in point, a simulation in June of 2001 called Dark Winter was intended to test the response to an outbreak of an anthrax attack. Less than four months later, after 9-11, an attack was launched in October featuring the anthrax placed in the envelopes of political and media professionals and placing a letter inside suggesting the author was of Middle Eastern Islamic background. And this background played in the hands of White House officials who were gunning for a war in Iraq. More recently, we saw two drills, Event 201 and Crimson Contagion, similarly drafting separate deals involving the spread of coronavirus from China to the rest of the world, also planned mere months before an actual coronavirus was also released. This is all documented in a special investigative report entitled Engineering Contagion, Amerithrax, Coronavirus, and the Rise of the Biotech Industrial Complex. It was launched in April by the site thelastamericanvagabond.com. The authors of the series are Whitney Webb and Raul Diego. In this sixth installment of our special series, Coronavirus, A Second Look, we will feature Whitney Webb for the duration of the show to share her insights into the players involved, the scandals revealed, and the perspectives one could arrive at as the pandemic has pulled our world into a truly unprecedented crisis. Whitney Webb has been a professional writer, researcher, and journalist since 2016. From 2017 to 2020, she was a staff writer and senior investigative reporter for Mint Press News. She currently writes for The Last American Vagabond, and she lives in Chile with her two-year-old daughter and her dogs, Worf and Cisco. I got Whitney to give us a breakdown of the engineering contagion. There are a lot of parallels, and there, there are different aspects that we can go into. So one example um, would be that there, um, you know, just like coronavirus and the anthrax attacks, both of those events were preceded by uh, simulations that eerily predicted the uh, outbreaks that followed. So, for example, there was the dark winter simulation prior to the 2001 anthrax attacks and participants um, in Dark Winter had apparent foreknowledge of the 2001 anthrax attacks and of course Dark Winter itself um, predicted the initial narrative of who to blame for the anthrax attacks, blaming it originally back in June before they even took place on Iraq and Al-Qaeda working together. Um, even though, and that was the initial narrative of the anthrax attacks of who was responsible until it was determined that the source of the anthrax had come from a U.S. military installation or a U.S. defense contractor. Um, and that likely explains the protracted investigation of the FBI um, into the anthrax attacks, which was not officially closed until after the death of uh, Bruce Ivins, who was the person that was allegedly responsible and numerous experts 
And even the National Academy of Sciences say there's no way Ivans could have acted alone as a lone wolf actor, as the government claims. Uh, currently, the 9-11 Lawyers Committee is seeking to reopen the anthrax investigation. Um, the lead investigator for the anthrax attacks at one time, Richard Lambert, ended up resigning from the FBI over what he said was a cover-up of the anthrax attacks by the FBI and ended up filing a whistleblower complaint um, uh, related to what he said was a cover-up of those attacks and an, a deliberate effort by the FBI uh, to frame Bruce Ivins. So um, what's interesting about that is that prior to the coronavirus crisis this year, we had two simulations take place last, uh, last year. One was run by HHS, uh, their Assistant Secretary of Preparedness and Response, Robert Cadlick called Crimson Contagion, which simulated a coronavirus outbreak beginning in China and spreading all over the world. Um, and then the other exercise that took place um, roughly two months later was Event 201 involving, uh, which was moderated by the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, which is currently headed by Thomas Inglesby. Thomas Inglesby was one of the four co-authors of the two June 2001 Dark Winter bioterror simulation, and Robert Cadlick, who is the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at HHS, responsible for overseeing Crimson Contagion, also participated in the Dark Winter exercise. And actually, the name of the exercise, Dark Winter, owes to a statement that Robert Cadlick made in a scripted part of that exercise uh, that you can actually still find on YouTube. Some of the uh, news clips, the fictional news clips that were used in the um, dark winter simulation, which is also something that incidentally enough was uh, also a part of event 201, sort of these actual fake news clips that were uh, part of that, uh, part of those simulations to make them more realistic. HHS stands for the Department of Health and Human Services. A man named Robert Cadlick, who will emerge as a serious player in the drama, was in charge of that institution's entire response. This in spite of his efforts on his part that needlessly infected Americans with COVID-19. Whitney Webb also elaborates on a third drill known as Clade X. So previously in 2018, uh, the same Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security had a separate exercise that was a bioterror event called Clade X that resulted in the imposition of martial law in the United States and the implementation of continuity of government protocols. Um, some people who uh, argue that there is another uh, pandemic on the way related to bioterrorism uh, point to Cladex as a potential uh, uh, predictive example of what could transpire. Um, and I, of course, I say that because of prominent people who predicted the coronavirus pandemic this year, like Bill Gates, um, back in April, he called the current crisis pandemic one and said that pandemic two will follow it and that pandemic two, as he calls it, uh, will be a bioterror event. And then you have people, prominent uh, European think tanks tied to the European political elite, like the Council of Europe, saying that the coronavirus crisis that we are enveloped in now will be followed by bioterrorism, among numerous other warnings from, uh, you know, people like a uh, uh, prominent CIA, former CIA officials who were involved in the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq, like uh, Charles Faddis or Sam Faddis, he's sometimes called, uh, predicting in, in various media columns that will soon be hit by a, a major bioterror attack that, and that allegedly the coronavirus crisis and has inspired uh, bioterrorists uh, around the world that would do us harm 
and, and things like that. So it, you know, it definitely is an interesting confluence um, of factors. And a lot of these simulations over the years have been used um, for various purposes. Um, I would argue um, they, they've done a series of them, the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. They did Dark Winter in 2005. They had Atlantic Storm, which was basically a global version of Dark Winter, not focused on the U.S. like Dark Winter was, but the entire West. And basically the response of that per the Western um, politicians that took place was there is a need for uh, more global governance or more um, uh, governing institutions that, um, you know, are not national in scope, but rather international in scope as, this, as necessary for pandemic response, uh, which is sort of similar to things that were discussed in Event 201, for example, hosted by the same group, but also in that instance, co-hosted by the World Economic Forum that is now currently um, given what's going on right now, pushing for things like what they call the Great Reset, things like a international digital identifications or uh, identification cards or health passports um, under the guise of combating the coronavirus crisis. So, you know, this is something that appears to have been, um, you know, uh, developed to an extent uh, by think tanks that have been preparing for a moment like this for um, decades and have long felt that certain uh, policies are necessary um, they say to prevent future pandemics from taking place. And that's another parallel we can get into as well, is that after the 2001 anthrax attacks, there were a variety of, uh, of responses proposed and some were implemented and some were not due to extreme public pushback uh, from mainstream media and groups like the ACLU. What Whitney is saying here is that just like the anthrax attack was being pushed by certain figures like Richard Pearl and others, as bioterrorism following 9-11, the simulation Clade X was being used by certain key figures, including Bill Gates, to predict the next outbreak as bioterrorism. She also brought up the Pentagon's Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, and how they unsuccessfully tried to bring a program to fruition after the 2001 anthrax attacks and how they could be more successful in the age of COVID. The main program that was not implemented, but they wanted to implement was called Total Information Awareness, um, which was originally to be managed by uh, DARPA at the Pentagon, but um, <clears throat> it was dismantled a few uh, months, uh, less than a year, I believe, after it was uh, instituted because it was going to essentially erode uh, the uh, right to privacy throughout the United States um, because it wished to, um, basically uh, surveil people to an extreme degree, um, financial information, travel records, what magazines you were subscribed to, your medical data, um, where you were going, who you were talking to, your location data, um, things like that. And one of their sub-programs was called biosurveillance. And it was specifically about um, monitoring all that data in an attempt to predict uh, bioterror events and also natural disease outbreaks before they could take place. And it's interesting to notice that over the course of the past few months since March, um, there have been efforts by HHS and other, um, <clears throat> other groups as well as Operation uh, Warp Speed uh, to sort of implement a lot of these same um, <clears throat> 
I guess you, oh, I would call them, you know, surveillance tactics, but they have used different names for it, contact tracing among other things, or uh, predictive analysis of COVID-19 outbreaks before they happen, which is uh, something that HHS has been developing um, rather recently um, in, in effort to um, <clears throat> Uh, that that's a little uh, that's something I wrote about recently, actually, um, how HHS has uh, plans by the end of December to in 42 states in the United States create a national wastewater surveillance system with the purpose of sampling that wastewater periodically in order to predict COVID-19 outbreaks before they take place. And a lot of those programs that we're seeing now have their roots back um, after the 2001 anthrax attack. Jerome Hauer yet another figure involved in Dark Winter, was active on the evening of September 11, 2001, encouraging Vice President Cheney to guard against anthrax attacks using an antibiotic known as Cipro. I asked if this constituted coincidence or something more. Um, I, I tend to uh, not think it was a coincidence because not only did you have people that participated in Dark Winter like Jerome Hauer um, actively warning the uh, various people in, in the Washington Beltway to take ciprofloaxin, which is an antibiotic that prevents anthrax infection. But you also had Dick Cheney's office. Um, the, uh, Dick Cheney himself actually was briefed by the uh, th three of the four co-authors of Dark Winter um, just a couple days after 9-11. And after that point, Dick Cheney's entire office was taking ciprofloaxin um, as well. So and of course, Dick Cheney himself was a member of Project for a New American Century, as you mentioned, several other PNAC uh, neocons that were in that organization with Dick Cheney began uh, going on media saying there could have been um, anthrax on the planes that hit the Twin Towers. Um, the next attack is likely to be anthrax and things like this, even though there was never any evidence uh, of any of these uh, of the people they were claiming uh, like the hijack, the nine, alleged 9-11 hijackers and people like that, no evidence of them ever tinkering with, with biological weapons as they were claiming on media at the time. And then, you know, this was all before uh, the anthrax attacks were made public, which was uh, the first week near the end of the first week of October um, 2001. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> uh, uh, there was this effort to blame those attacks as soon as they happened on Iraq and say that the source of the anthrax was from Iraq, claiming falsely that there was bentonite in the anthrax. Of course, bentonite was never found in the anthrax, and they alleged that bentonite was a hallmark of Saddam Hussein's alleged biological weapons program, which, of course, we know now um, was, you know, essentially invented by these people. It's worth pointing out that Robert Cadlick, the origin of the term dark winter used in the exercise, and the person that did Crimson Contagion, right uh, on the day of 9-11, was added to the Department of Defense as their main advisor for biodefense and bioterror at a time when the anthrax attacks occurred. And of course, their source is now, now known to have been a U.S. military installation or defense contractor. So it's interesting to see his involvement there directly, um, working directly with people like Paul Wolfowitz and Donald Rumsfeld. And also Robert Cadlick had a close relationship then and year in the years since, as did Jerome Hauer with a company called previously called Bioport and now known as Emergent Biosolutions, uh, which is the um, 
sole uh, manufacturer uh, of the anthrax vaccine, which was very controversial before <laughs> September 2001. And actually in mid-September 2001 stood to lose all of its contracts for anthrax vaccine with the Pentagon due to concerns over uh, safety and efficacy among other things. And of course, after the anthrax attacks, those concerns evaporated and no one cared about those safety or efficacy issues uh, because of the anthrax attacks. They wanted to buy more vaccine and they didn't wanna just buy it for the military. They wanted to buy it for firefighters, for civilians, for first responders, which is obviously was a huge boon to Bioport or Emergent Biosolutions, which was set to lose its entire business because at that point, Emergent Biosolutions only uh, product that generated any income for them was the anthrax vaccine and those contracts with the Pentagon. A little later on, it, it became, it changed its name to Emergent uh, uh, Biosolutions, but you know, there's no sign that things, that, that essential uh, you know, thuggery, that, that essential uh, you know, misappropriation of things is, is necessarily changed. It's, it's just a, a venue by which this money can keep going in. Right. And, you know, I think it's interesting, too, that, you know, um, the year they chose to change their name is the same year that they were found uh, that uh, the U.S. government, the Pentagon specifically, um, lost a lawsuit about how they were using the, the uh, Bioport or Emergent Biosolutions anthrax vaccine in an off-label use, uh, technically an experimental use uh, or untested use, rather, on U.S. soldiers making their mandatory anthrax vaccination program illegal and uh, tainting the bio port name uh, with that lawsuit, then they changed their name to Emergent Biosolutions and they add Jerome Howard to their board of directors where he remains today. And it's quite interesting that Robert Cadlick, again, connected to the same company um, who's in charge of this, that has this major top post at HHS. We now see Emergent Biosolutions set to manufacture the majority of COVID-19 vaccines uh, upon their approval through an existing contract with uh, HHS's BARDA. So this company that has a litany of scandals, not just uh, their scandals for the, the safety issues uh, related to the anthrax vaccine, but numerous other products that they have been documented to, uh, that have been documented to not have been tested for safety or efficacy before emergent biosolutions bio started, sell started selling them uh, to the US government. It's vaccine with the, uh, with the Gulf War thing, right? Or not the Gulf War, but uh, right. But uh, um, during the Gulf War, so Gulf War syndrome has been uh, alleged to be related to the anthrax vaccine. But at that point, Bioport was not uh, the owner of the anthrax vaccine monopoly. It was actually an installation that at the time was owned by the uh, managed by the U.S. military. And a few years later, uh, before the mandatory anthrax vaccination policy for uh, U.S. servicemen was instituted is when Bioport was created and then uh, acquired control of that factory and that monopoly over the anthrax vaccine. So at the time of, of the Gulf War, it was, a, it was essentially a Pentagon uh, run vaccine factory. And uh, one may argue that the interest in uh, not fully investigating what caused Gulf War syndrome may have to do with the fact that the Pentagon would have been 100% liable for all of that, uh, the manufacture of the vaccine and its administration, um, you know, which, is, which could have cost the Pentagon uh, an insane amount of money. So it makes sense why they uh, wouldn't find themselves guilty when they were tasked with investigating themselves, right? So um, 
<laughs> just just another scandal. But you know, um, when Bioport acquired that that, that vaccine factory, it was in uh, a horrible state and had essentially been shut down um, by the FDA. And instead, and they received lots of money at that time from the Pentagon to fix the factory, which they did not do. Instead, they bought new executive offices and refurnished. Uh, you know, um, things for their, their senior management. Um, and, you know, that's part of the saga that began then and continued through September 2001, which had eventually led uh, the Pentagon and also Congress to run out of patience with this company. And in mid-September, the Pentagon was going to release a report about uh, how they would go about acquiring anthrax vaccine without this company. And of course the September 11th attacks on the Pentagon and the subsequent anthrax attacks seemingly solved all of emergent biosolutions problems. And it's worth pointing out that at the end of 2001, Emergent Biosolutions had teamed up with a place, uh, a defense contractor, and also a CIA contractor called Battelle Memorial Institute, which is in Ohio, that several investigators that look at the anthrax, um, have looked at the anthrax attacks, suspect that it may have actually been the source of the anthrax using the 2001 anthrax attacks had come from Battelle, because we know that at the time, before the 2001 anthrax attacks, Battelle was involved in uh, several um, experiments and uh, secret projects involving anthrax for both the CIA and the Pentagon, including the development of a uh, more virulent genetically engineered strain of anthrax. And that was being overseen by associates of people like Robert Cadlick or Randy Larson, uh, Randy Larson being another dark winter co-author. Um, and so you see a lot of the ties to these same uh, people sort of weave in and out of these events and who stood to benefit most from the anthrax attacks. Well, Emergent Biosolutions then teamed up with uh, Mattel Memorial Institute certainly appears to have been one, as were the people that wished to uh, lie us into war with Iraq, uh, you know, through uh, uh, by various means. And that included at the time, top people at the Pentagon like Paul Wolfowitz and Donald Rumsfeld, um, who we know now lied to the American public about the um, alleged WMD threat from Iraq. And they were being advised at that time in terms of bioterror and biodefense by Robert Cadlick, a dark winter participant. And as I've mentioned a couple times, Robert Cadlick continues in a very prominent position at the Department of Health and Human Services. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. A name mentioned frequently over the course of this interview was Robert Cadlick, who was a key architect of the anthrax exercise known as Dark Winter. The Department of Health and Human Services Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, or ASPR, was in fact part of a powerful network of political operatives and bioterror alarmists. He now has control over how stockpiles of $7 billion of vaccines, antidotes, and other urgent remedies are dispatched in emergency situation. Whitney found him being interviewed for the official publication of the American College of Emergency Physicians, saying, quote, My participation in the ASPR project began at that time when I was working for the chairman of the Subcommittee on Bioterrorism and Public Health Preparedness. The bill was made law and the ASPR was created. It just was a coincidence that 12 or 14 years later, I was asked to become the ASPR. Unquote. 
I asked Whitney about the man she described as the head of the Hydra. Yeah, you, you've got a, an entire chapter just devoted to him and his... <laughs> yes, I wish more people would pay attention to him because he really deserves the scrutiny more than a lot of other people that have been getting it this year. Um, I'm pretty amazed that he's evaded the spotlight to uh, such a degree, but um, he definitely is a person to pay attention to because he is uh, essentially managing HHS's entire response to coronavirus. He plays a major role in Operation Warp Speed the public-private partnership to create a COVID-19 vaccine and deliver it to 300 million Americans by January 2021. And so his connections to <clears throat> companies like Emergent Biosolutions, where he's been a lobbyist and all of this other stuff and has promoted their products that, as I mentioned earlier, um, have had numerous scandals with, with safety and, and other things like that, uh, 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 misleading marketing, among other things, you know, he's been willing to rubber stamp them. So the fact, you know, over the years, so the fact that he's involved um, in Operation Warp Speed uh, should be, you know, concerning, as well as other aspects of COVID-19 response, as well as the fact that he seemingly predicted the crisis we're in now last year. Um, you know, it's just uh, an interesting series of coincidences that after a while, it, it seems less of a coincidence. Fort Detrick was the home of America's top biological warfare lab. It was also engaged in curious anthrax experiments and studies, but in addition to all of this, they had a track record of breaches that saw deadly pathogens like anthrax and Ebola going missing. I asked Whitney Webb to comment on its role in the wider scheme. Fort Detrick is actually open again. It was closed uh, briefly last year after a uh, at least two breaches of pathogens that the uh, army will not say what they were, so we have no idea. Uh, we do know that it took place uh, sometime in the mid part of last year, but we don't know the exact timeline because though the army released some information, some of it was redacted or withheld. Um, for whatever reason, but uh, unfortunately, those types of breaches, like the one Vort Dietrich um, experienced last year, are hardly an anomaly in the history of that institution. Um, specifically, since the late, uh, since the early 1990s, there have been a series of documented breaches. Uh, many of them at Fort Dietrich, but also um, at places uh, at other U.S. military installations. I believe it was found um, in 2015 that between 2005 and 2015, there were over 80 instances where the U.S. Army sent live anthrax through the mail, not just uh, through the United States mail system, but also to labs abroad, including uh, places, I believe, like South Korea and Australia. Um, and they didn't discover that, you know, 10 years after the fact, and that was going on um, 80 times, you know, that's at least uh, eight times a year or so that, you know, these institutions are uh, sending a something like anthrax through the mail without proper safety protocols that could easily uh, cause major problems. Uh, you know, I mean, it just shows the lack of, of, um, of safety at these institutions that under the guise of biodefense um, often in, engage in genetic engineering of pathogens that would not normally exist in nature or developing uh, bioweapons for the purpose of developing medical countermeasures for them because a lot of this gain of function research that we've heard a lot about this year, the justifications for that research are for the development of vaccines or therapeutics that would ameliorate um, 
the or, or that would allow um, or that could be used in an instance of, a, of like a, an emergency if those bioweapons were to be unleashed on the American public. That's the justification for a lot of this research and has been. And it's been like that since the U.S. bioweapons program was officially ended by President Nixon. They sort of continued to do much of the same, but they sort of just changed how they framed um, a lot of this research. Um, and they couldn't, you know, um, develop certain weapons uh, and, and things like that, like they had done prior to that program being closed down. But a lot of the gain of function research of these pathogens continued. Um, you know, another example we have in the early 90s, for example, with Fort Detrick in particular, um, there was um, <clears throat> such a lack of oversight at that period of time that there was one, one person who... Um, was coming into that lab and taking uh, vials and samples that were found missing. Um, and he, he was um, changing the labels of things like that, it, it, uh, in things like that um, in the lab um, against protocol and taking things out without you know, safety precautions. It was later revealed that this person um, was Philip Zack. And despite you know, um, doing the, these types of things that should have prevented him from ever working in any other sort of um, by like, you know, a dangerous bioweapons lab. He ends up doing research uh, for the NIH immediately after, and then is later hired by uh, Gilead, which at, the, at that point was uh, still being run by Donald Rumsfeld, who later becomes a Department of Defense guy, um, <laughs> you know, during the 2001 anthrax attacks and 9-11 and all of that stuff. So, um, you know, this is something that has really plagued these types of programs uh, for decades. And very, as we can see by what happened last year at Fort Detrick, and apparently not enough has been done uh, to prevent uh, these types of breaches or, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> uh, samples of deadly pathogens going missing and things like that. It certainly seems to be a very persistent problem for the U.S. military. The Clade-X exercise mentioned earlier invoked continuity of government, or COG mechanisms. These, con these included the transfer of power and the invocation of martial law. I asked Whitney to go into a little more detail on this subject. Sure. So that a specific exercise took place in 2018. It was called Clade-X. But before I get into Clade-X, it's worth pointing out that the groundwork for the issues that Clade-X explored were set in Dark Winter because Dark Winter talks about invoking uh, the Insurrection Act and temporary declarations of martial law in certain areas of the country or certain states um, in, in the response to a uh, pandemic or bioterror uh, scenario. And this, of course, is something that um, Clade-X explored in detail. But what's interesting is Clade-X was about um, a terror group uh, creating a genetically engineered pathogen, uh, combining, uh, I believe, um, <clears throat> I forget exactly what it was, but it was uh, the Nipah virus, which has a very high mortality rate, um, with some, something else that was less lethal, and it was unleashed um, on the American public. And interestingly enough, the uh, purported mortality rate of this pathogen that was called Clade-X, and it's what the exercise is, is named for, is the same mortality rate officially of coronavirus. They claim that it has a 10% mortality rate, though, you know, we can certainly point to um, different figures from different countries around the world that suggest it is significantly less than 10%. But um, it's interesting that that was the um, number that uh, uh, initially stuck with the narrative of the, of the current um, 
coronavirus crisis. Um, so in, in Claydex, continuity of government is explored um, near the end of the exercise. And um, a lot of those protocols, it's worth pointing out, um, are secret, though they were updated by the Bush administration just before George W. Bush left office in 2007. And allegedly those updates, so the continuity of government plans by the Bush administration, which remain classified, were inspired directly by dark winter and seemed to have some sort of connection to a bioterror scenario. At that point in 2007, uh, the main advisor to the Homeland Security Council for Bioterror and Biodefense was none other than Robert Kedlick himself, who was advising these changes classified changes that were made to continuity of government in relation to bioterror. So it's interesting that Claydex explored these issues, but noted in the exercise that those portions of continuity of government are classified and they could not discuss them. Um, it's worth pointing out too that uh, Claydex was led by one of the Dark Winter co-authors Tara O'Toole, who used to head the Johns Hop, what is now the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, but she is currently uh, working for the CIA at NQTEL, and at the time of the Clade X exercise was in that position uh, working for the CIA. And prior to that was um, head of the Science and Technology Directorate at the Department of Homeland Security. So she certainly is a woman with a lot of pull. It's worth pointing out also that Claydex included people that had participated in Dark Winter, like Margaret Hamburg, who uh, was FDA commissioner under Obama, uh, among other things. She currently works uh, as an advisor to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, So, um, which co-sponsored Event 201 with the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. So. Um, <clears throat> What's interesting about Claydex though in this exploration of continuity of government um, is that earlier this year under the guise of the coronavirus crisis in March, uh, continuity of government protocols in Washington DC were actually implemented. And there is a uh, special part of uh, the US military that was activated under the guise of continuity of government because during that period of time back in March, uh, there were claims that uh, most of Congress could soon be infected and would be unable to serve in their role as the legislative body of the country, that the president and vice president could contract the virus and not be able to lead, that it would uh, directly threaten the normal line of succession, which is president, vice president, speaker of the House of Congress. And so this was this was implemented then, but uh, despite the fact that that uh, concern never materialized, that uh, those protocols remain implemented today, just sort of sitting there, they have not been uh, deactivated. Um, it's also worth pointing out that earlier in the year, uh, the CIA and the military um, <clears throat> together drafted uh, secret coronavirus response plans, which remain classified. It's not known uh, if those have been implemented yet or there's a plan to implement them at some point in the future, but they were described as 9-11 style uh, responses to the coronavirus crisis. So um, <clears throat> it's worth pointing out too, continuity of government, um, you know, it, it's often justified um, by different ways, but it's worth pointing out that continuity of government was changed and shaped back in the 80s by people like Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, even though they were not in government at the time. And at the time of 9-11 and afterwards, continuity of government protocols uh, were activated uh, and gave a lot of power uh, to people like Dick Cheney, uh, who was vice president at the time, among other things. So, um, you know, there's a lot of interesting uh, threads there uh, related to uh, a lot of the events we're talking about back in 2001 uh, and in what's been uh, going on today. Though I suspect that um, 
the continuity of government situation, we're more likely to see if there really is another pandemic too involving bioterror as Bill Gates has predicted. Um, if there is an event along those lines, it's more likely that we will see uh, the types of um, <clears throat> responses simulated in the Clade X exercise. We're, more, we're more likely to see those uh, materialize. I'm going to uh, look to, at your other uh, series that you, you just started now. It's uh, earlier this month. Uh, it's called Operation Warp Speed. Uh, and I, I think that basically, uh, it, well, okay, it, it's a public-private partnership launched by the Trump administration to rapidly develop and distribute uh, COVID-19 vaccines. And uh, I think they, the same week that Trump was getting, uh, he was sick and the media focused on, oh my gosh, what's going to happen, what's going to be, become of the election. Uh, the, the company had made a, or there was a, an NPR report saying that uh, they were going to be awarding contracts to vaccine companies, not directly, but through a secret, secretive defense contract. So, yeah, but it, so, but you, Trump with his, uh, disease and everything that, that kind of distracts the public. We need to give us uh, an estimate of what your, uh, what's, what's your take on Operation Warp Speed and, and what's dangerous or heart hazardous about it. Okay, so originally um, Operation Warp Speed was launched in May as a public-private partnership, supposed to be, uh, they told us anyway, managed uh, essentially 50-50 by the Department of uh, Health and Human Services or HHS and the Department of Defense, the US military. Um, it came out last month, uh, essentially during the US presidential debate around that time when literally no one, and well, not literally no one I was, but you know, the majority of the US public was not paying attention to things like this. Uh, you know, uh, it was revealed that the organizational chart of Operation Warp Speed is dominated more than 90% by the US military. The majority of generals and other uh, military officials involved have no prior experience in healthcare, the field of healthcare or uh, vaccine production. Um, what you have instead in terms of its uh, vaccine component um, is you have the head of the operation being Monsef Salawi, who is, um, used to be head of global vaccines for GlaxoSmithKline um, and is a major proponent of what he calls bioelectronic medicine, uh, essentially nanotechnology used for medical purposes. Um, and he uh, was involved, why he was at GlaxoSmithKline in the creation of a bioelectronics company called Galvani Bioelectronics that he uh, that was co-founded with a subsidiary of Google, uh, then called Google Life Sciences. So, um, <clears throat> Under him, the go-to vaccine coordinator under Monsef Salawi is a former program manager for DARPA, uh, who is still employed by the Department of Defense. Um, his name is Matt Hepburn, and he is essentially the go-to vaccine coordinator for Operation Warp Speed. Um, a, a prominent panel of experts at the CDC that's normally involved in developing vaccine distribution plans and mass vaccination policies on behalf of the US government uh, spoke to Matt Hepburn. He pointedly refused to answer most of their questions, uh, despite the fact that the CDC is supposed to be 
warp speed set anyway involved in key parts of the operation, but apparently they are being stonewalled by people like Matt Hepburn. Uh, we were also originally told that the FDA was going to have a major role in Operation Warp Speed, but it has uh, it came out in mainstream publications like Stat News that top FDA officials were barred from even sitting in on Operation Warp Speeds, let alone participating. They can't even sit in um, and, and listen to what's going on. Um, Essentially, there's only one woman from the FDA involved in the leadership of Operation Warp Speed. Uh, she was described by Stat News as essentially a one-woman firewall uh, that allows the information from Operation Warp Speed to be channeled into the FDA, uh, greatly limiting the amount of the flow of information between Operation Warp Speed and the, the Food and Drug Administration. And this is uh, of concern because uh, Operation Warp Speed uh, is not only stonewalling and barring uh, public health officials from meetings, it is honestly oper operating under the utmost secrecy. Um, their vaccine contracts um, are largely secret. They were set to be immune from Freedom of Information Act requests, but uh, some members of Congress found out about that after I reported about it. And um, <clears throat> they ended up complaining. And then Operation Warp Speed released uh, two of their contracts, uh, two of the six, I believe, vaccine contracts um, that are part of the operation. But I mean, most of those contracts were redacted in their entirety. So in terms of transparency, I don't really know um, if it's really as transparent as they can claim. Uh, most of those vaccine contracts through Operation Warp Speed were not made directly by the US government um, and the vaccine companies as is custom. Instead, they were routed through a third party intermediary called ATI, which is a subsidiary of ANSWER. ANSWER, of course, being the main sponsor of Dark Winter back in June 2001. And by routing the vaccine contracts through this third party intermediary, not only are you able to obfuscate the Freedom of Information Act uh, process, but you also make those back. It also allows these vaccine companies uh, to operate without normal federal safety regulations and federal oversight, um, which would have been different if the contracts had been made directly between the US government and the vaccine companies. So it allows the vaccine companies, many of which have very uh, unfortunate track records with regards to product safety, like Johnson and Johnson, for example, allows them to develop these vaccines um, you know, without federal safety regulations uh, and federal oversight, um, giving them billions of dollars to spend as they please, and their contracts are largely redacted and not available to the public. In addition to the uh, minimal involvement of public health officials and the dominance of the military, we now know that other um, parts of the um, United States government that have become involved in Operation Warp Speed since it was announced in May include the National Security Agency or the NSA and DHS, the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI. Um, why they need to be involved in a vaccination program? Uh, your guess is as good as mine. I don't really, um, I frankly think it's quite odd that this is a medical countermeasure, i.e. a vaccine being funded by American taxpayers to be injected into American taxpayers during peacetime when there is no war taking place, no buyer terror or anything like that. 
but yet uh, the military and not really the national security state, if you count the NSA and DHS are you know, involved in this operation. Uh, even public health officials don't really know what's going on. Um, I mean, it, it definitely looks um, as, as mainstream media has even been forced to admit, warp speed looks more like a military operation than a science project. And I think anyone uh, looking at, at, at you know, what I've just laid out uh, definitely should have more questions um, about what's going on here. It's definitely um, concerning. And a lot of these vaccines that are being essentially developed in secret without um, a lot of federal oversight um, are being rushed through under the guise of speed, getting the vaccine out as quickly as possible and essentially uh, circumventing uh, normal vaccine approval processes. And that's why it's important to point out that every single Operation Warp Speed vaccine candidate, none of them use technology that uh, vaccine production methods that um, have ever been licensed or marketed, taken to market before. Every existing vaccine in the United States that has been approved for use uh, uses different methods than the ones that Operation Warp Speed is using. And Operation Warp Speed admits that uh, these vaccine production technologies that are part of this operation have limited, if any, uh, safety tests uh, done in humans pre uh, prior to these, um, that these uh, currently ongoing COVID-19 vaccine trials. And of course, we've seen those trials paused on several occasions uh, for safety concerns. We There was even a person that died from one in Brazil from the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is also part of Operation Warp Speed. Um, you know, it's definitely concerning and a lot of those clinical, uh, the parameters of those studies are also secret, like much of the rest of the operation. I wonder if maybe you could, you could sum up somehow, uh, somewhat uh, and conservatively, but uh, maybe uh, somewhat uh, responsibly, um, what from the standpoint of people who are concerned about the vaccine, from the standpoint of people who are concerned about where uh, we're headed in terms of uh, you know interrelations with Canada, the United States, China. Uh, what what responsibly should we draw from this? You've mentioned that, that this vaccine, the vaccine company, is essentially uh, a U.S. military operation. Uh, what what is the outcome that uh, or what 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 can we responsibly predict going forward? Um, as far as Operation Operation Warp Speed goes, um, I think uh, we can essentially predict that a lot of these vaccine candidates um, will be approved regardless of whether they should be approved or whether it's in the best interest of civilians for it to be approved. I say this because the US government, as well as the Canadian government, the Australian government, and numerous governments around the world have already purchased hundreds of millions of doses of these vaccines that have yet to be licensed or approved to go to market in any country, right? So it, it's very likely that because of that extreme economic pressure from both the manufacturer of the vaccine and the governments that have purchased them, that they will be authorized for emergency use um, in the United States and other governments as well. If the United States approves a vaccine that allows them to pressure other governments to approve it as well, which has happened in, in previous uh, pandemic situations. So um, that's certainly concerning. And, and one example, um, Pfizer, which is a Operation Warp Speed vaccine candidate, claims that it will, it, it is set to be approved at the uh, end of November, and they have already begun manufacturing hundreds of thousands of doses of their vaccine. And it's worth pointing out that one of the top officials at the FDA right now, 
involved in approving those vaccines under emergency, emergency use authorizations used to be uh, Pfizer's vice president for safety. And while she was at Pfizer, uh, she covered up the connections between a Pfizer product Zoloft and birth defects. And in, in the course of that lawsuit regarding Zoloft's ties to birth defects, Pfizer uh, attempted to block her from testi uh, testifying in the case. They did not want her to have to speak under oath. And now this is the woman, uh, you know, in charge, uh, one of the key people involved in issuing these approvals. Uh, and uh, lo and behold, uh, her previous employer is going to be, they claim anyway, uh, said to be the first to receive that emergency use authorization from the FDA. And they've already begun manufacturing hundreds of, uh, hundreds of thousands of doses by their own admission before approval um, has even been issued. And this is something that has, um, is a very unfortunate way of conducting business. Uh, you would think that they wouldn't start manufacture until after their approval. So why are they already beginning to manufacture such a large number of doses? I mean, hundreds of thousands um, is, is quite significant uh, before they're, they're even set to be approved. It really suggests that, um, you know, uh, it, it's a, just another example of putting profits over people and one that could do much more damage to public health than, than help. So to sum up, Robert Cadlick and other individuals who helped push through anthrax drills a few months before the 2001 anthrax attack and pushed the idea the U.S. would face anthrax attacks and the anthrax attacks came about. Now, those same players are pushing through at least three coronavirus drills before they became actually existent in the U.S. and one exercise predicts pushing through continuance of government measures and martial law in the wake of an act of bioterrorism which many highly placed people are predicting will happen. Plus, we have Operation Warp Speed, effectively a military installation overseeing the installation of vaccines for Americans and Canadians with no true oversight to guarantee safety. If one reads more than a coincidence in all of this, then the United States and the world are surely in for the darkest of winters. The guest on today's show was investigative journalist Whitney Webb. In 2019, Whitney received the Serena Shim Award for Uncompromised Integrity in Journalism. Look for her series, Engineering Contagion, Amerithrax, Coronavirus, and the Rise of the Biotech Industrial Complex, and her series on Operation Warp Speed at the site thelastamericanvagabond.com. Whitney is also together with her colleague Ryan Christian to discuss the U.S. election under the headline Pre-Planned 2020 Election Chaos and the New 9-11, noting that a tight-knit group of shady companies have been conducting simulations of such a scenario for two years and how mainstream media are portraying it as inevitable with less than a week to go. The site, once again, is thelastamericanvagabond.com. That's the end of the show for this week. Next week, we will get perspectives of the defenders of the official story of the COVID pandemic and how they respond to the voices you have heard in this special six-part series. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiowak and the Nakota. 
The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening.